Hello, and welcome back to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, we're continuing last episode's conversation with Robin Campbell, a theater kid turned theater administrator in Greensboro, North Carolina, about the musical Rent. Uh, if you missed our last episode, I highly recommend you go back to it for a quick journey through the history of Rent, our history with Rent, Rent's impact on the history of musical theater, more stuff like that. On the other hand, if you only come to this podcast to hear us laugh about the things that didn't age well, oh, buddy, start here because you are in the right place. I mean, I think the thing that's important to keep in mind is that all of these characters are underwritten because this musical was inherently still in progress. Um, Something that is particularly underwritten in a way that I find really dissatisfying is... uh, Mark's arc and conflict. So his conflict that only pops up at Angel's funeral. Um, the whole monologue that Mark has, like like Mark's whole conflict in this musical is, I am suddenly being offered money to use my talents and skills for a product that is not an artistic endeavor of my heart. Does that make me a bad person? And I'm here to tell you empirically, no. It is okay <laughs> if you are an actor. Or, I, listen, no, listen, everyone who's listening to this, I, I, I want you to shut up and listen to me. If you are an actor or a writer or a filmmaker or a music maker or anything at all, and somebody offers you money to use those skills to sell something, like as long as it's not, you know, something you politically fundamentally disagree with, as long as you're not making like, I don't know, a jingle for ice or some shit, it's okay <laughs> to make money at your art. And like, it, it was underdeveloped. I think part of what was underdeveloped was maybe Buzzline wasn't wasn't developed as how terrible is this show or what it is. It just- It's just like, ooh, it's so sleazy, but you don't really know what it is. You don't really know what it is. And it comes across that like, they really liked his filming of the protest. They want him to do more of that for money. And he goes into an existential crisis thinking, oh my God, does this make me a sellout? And I mean, listen, speaking as the child of a rabbi, I will say that it is a very recognizable Jewish phenomenon to spiral into guilt when you are offered success. But nevertheless, like the message that this sends to young artists like you and I were is that success is only valid if it comes on pure artistic terms. So let's, the time has come, let's talk about Benjamin Coffin III. Okay. Benjamin Coffin III, he... I want to talk about who Benny is based on, and we're going to go back to Labo M. Okay. Take me on a journey. Okay. So in Labo M, uh, there's, you've got the four roommates. You've got Rodolfo, who is Roger. He's the writer. You've got Marcello, who's the painter, who is Mark. You've got uh, Colleen and Schonard. And that's obviously Collins and Angel mm-hmm. Dumont Schonard. Um, and they're all living in this artist loft in Paris and they're poor And they get a knock on the door and it's their landlord, Benoit. And they're like, ah, fuck, the landlord's here. But they let him in and the landlord's like, hey, you owe like a few months rent. And Marcello kind of starts like buttering him up, like, come have a drink with us. He's like, I'm going to deal with this. And so they they start plying Benoit with drinks and saying, hey, we saw you at some bar or something with some woman and, and getting Benoit to talk about like his amorous exploits. And then Benoit then starts like makes the joke about his wife 
and the four friends feign outrage. They're like, oh my God, you terrible person cheating on your wife. How dare you get out? And they throw Benoit out having gotten out of paying their rent. Right. And they, and he leaves and they start laughing. And so they've, they don't give a shit about what he does or who he's sleeping with or, or his wife or anything. Right. It's just a matter of they don't have money and they don't want to pay the rent. And then you never see Benoit again. He's gone. So in the adaptation of La Boheme into Rent, Benny, Benjamin Coffin III, suddenly is not, is very different from the character that he's based on. Right. He's not just their, some random landlord. He's their friend and he keeps showing back up. And so, yeah, at first he's, he's, he's there and he's like, hey, you owe me rent. And yeah, when you're a kid, it's like, oh, the landlord, oh, Benny's a buzzkill, oh, blah, blah, blah. And Benny doesn't want to support them in their artistic endeavors until you r- grow up and realize, well, no, Benny gave them a great deal. Like, Benny didn't charge them rent for a year. Well, but here's then- the thing. Here's what he's doing, though. Uh, like, basically... Benny is a morally grayer character than I was prepared for in this last this last round. Yes, yes, yes. Because originally I was like, "Oh, he's such a villain," and then thinking about it, I was like, "No, he's the hero." And now I'm like, "Oh God, he's just a mess." Because he's not saying, "Hey, you need to pay me this month's rent." He's saying, uh, "This past year's rent, which I let slide." And there's a miscommunication because yeah. the dudes are like, "No, no, no, you told us we didn't have to pay it." And he's, which, yeah. by the way, like side note, this was very real to me because at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I and two of my three roommates became unemployed. Uh, we we were given to understand that pandemic unemployment was going to come through, but none of us knew when it was going to happen. So we did call our landlord and say, hey, we can't pay. Uh, we will be able to pay as soon as the unemployment comes through. Is it okay if we don't pay rent for now? And he said, yes, that's fine. And then he called back later. He was like, so when are you going to be able to pay this month's rent? Because our understanding was, we're just not going to pay two months. And his understanding was, we will pay it later. And it's a horrifying thing. It's horrifying. So like, suddenly, like, let's just say that like the question of paying rent is, I I, I just, I looped back all the way back around to to being back on the boy's side in the life of 2020. This is why I like emails, because you get everything in writing. Emails (laughs) Emails are superior, yes. And so, like, what I would have said, what I would say to, what I would have said to, to um, Mark and Roger is, you need to get in writing whatever he's saying. Exactly. And so Benny comes in and he says, "Hey, you owe me my rent." And and so it's like, yeah, Benny's an asshole at first, but then they see him later, and he says, "Hey," he offers them a deal, like an amazing deal. Yes. Like the best deal that like. Benny Benjamin Coffin the third, off like using his wife's money, says, "Hey, if you stop this stupid little protest, and like, so that no one we don't have to call the cops, so no one gets hurt. If you stop this, I will, I will really for, for real let your rent slide. I will let you live rent free in this new building that we're gonna build." And you'll have studio space. Like, I will basically be your patron. I will subsidize you. Yeah. And 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 patronage, like, in the history of art, all you ever wanted as an artist was a patron. And he's basically offering to be that for Mark and, and Roger. And they're like, 
fuck you. You sellout whore. Well, because yes. So here's here's where here's where I am here's where I am pro Benny and here's where I am anti Benny. Because first of all, all right. I would like ha- like like cards on the table. I would love to become a less morally ambiguous Benjamin Coffin the third. If my life, like if five years from now, I have married rich, used that money to invest in my neighborhood and build artistic infrastructure and create space for myself and my friends to create art, then I have fucking succeeded and I am so goddamn happy. Like I honestly, am so- that's the that's my dream now. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's fantastic. Uh what and and so for them to be like, uh, you sell. I would just out. also like to say for for any people who are listening to this, Abby and I are both single. We're both delightful. Yeah, man, <laughs> I am available. And if you are both rich and preferably not in the United States, I am available for yeah. quick marriage and immigration. Um, he same same, same. hard same uh, to myself. He so <laughs> not only. <laughs> Not only did he like win the lottery and then turn around to reinvest it in art, Roger and Mark are basically treating him like a pariah for succeeding. Like it's, yes, it's, 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 uh, I forget where this originally, this, this image originally comes from, but I know it from Terry Pratchett, the crab bucket mentality that if you have a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one of the crabs starts to crawl out, all the other crabs will drag that crab back in, even if they're all Uh. destined to be killed. Uh, and it's popped up in a lot of places. Uh, I know it from Terry Pratchett. Anyway, they're they're doing full-on crab bucket. On the other hand, if we accept it as true that Benny originally told them that they could live there for free for a year, and now he's showing up saying, hey, either you can pay me a whole year's rent right now, or you can shut down our friend's protest that's getting in the way of my building plans and will make me look bad to my father-in-law so that I don't have to call the cops and start some violence. Then he becomes an extortionist. And the other thing, yes, the other thing that's worth bringing to the table is the question of gentrification. Because on the one hand, Benny used to live in this neighborhood and he's reinvesting his yep. money into it, into the, into the neighborhood to improve it. But he's not improving it necessarily for the people who live there. And he's going to have to wipe out a whole tent city to do it. And that's a complicated issue. Yeah. And I mean, and that that's the, the strange thing listening to this show recently is that I realized that none of these people is actually like good. No. They, like as underwritten as they are, they, they actually are very complex because they don't, they are, there aren't people who are like only do good things. And then there are the people who only do bad things. Like Benny offers to pay for Mimi's rehab, but he's cheating on his wife with Mimi. After he and has so like, slut shamed Mimi in front of Roger to get them to fight. Because if he lived with Roger, then he knows what a jealous Claudio fuckhead Roger is. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so it's, like, for every good thing someone does, they'll turn around and be an absolute fuckwit the next minute. Yeah. And there are there are protagonists, but no one is, a, is the hero. No. Because no one gets out of the crab bucket, is the thing. Yeah, and, like, and there's, and there's no real, like, Billy, Benny is an antagonist, but he's not a villain. Because also, 
he wants to get back in the crab bucket. That's the crazy thing. He's gotten back out of he's gotten out of the crab bucket, but he keeps standing back on the edge, like looking back, like, hey guys, hey, yeah, wanna hang out. Like, and that's the other thing I don't get is like, why does he want to keep? Why does he keep wanting to like help out and hang out with these people who just insult him and treat him like dirt? But also, and- why do they immediately go to shitting on him? Like, why? Yeah, isn't there? I mean, probably because there's just not enough room for the music for there to be a nuanced conversation of. Well, listen, we can't shut down Maureen's protest because Maureen's our friend as well, and we do believe in her political point. But um, we do want to discuss this real estate deal that you have in front of you. Is there anything else we can do to help you? Maybe we can, like, provide security can we on this or at something the, at and, the protest, yeah. or we can like mitigate the coverage. Or eh, there's there's things. Um, and yeah. But here's the other thing about Benny, though. Speaking of the ways that it's underwritten, sometimes he's sleazy just for the just for the sake of something sleazy happening. Like yeah. The, the whole thing where he, I think it's, it's, it's on New Year's that he says, you know, Mimi showed up at my, at my office wearing black leather and lace to negotiate with you guys getting back in the apartment. Yeah. And she's very reasonably like, yeah, I'm a sex worker. I was on my way to work. That wasn't for you. Um, yeah. And then he swoops in on her the minute she starts, like she, she and Roger go on the rocks and Benny swoops in on Mimi and Mimi for reasons that are not justified by the script or by the way she has been written as a character starts dating him you could make the argument that like well where else is she going to get money from her very well paid from her very well paid stripping job like yeah. she's fine for money she doesn't need to date benny she's hated him this whole time there's no reason for her to date him other than it creates conflict for roger and it gives Benny an opportunity to suddenly be the good guy because he pays for rehab, he pays for Angel's funeral. And he ultimately, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the musical, he's written out with one line about how uh, Benny's been pulled out of the East Village location because somebody told his wife that he was cheating on her. And it was probably Angel. Yeah. 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 And it's like, yeah, the, and the whole thing about his relationship with Mimi is so it just comes out of nowhere. Like in the, the, the La Viva one scene at the life cafe at the end of act, act one. And he just, there, there's an aside with them. He's like, your new boyfriend doesn't know about us. And just like, what us, what the hell? And what happened? And it's, and she's like, it's three months ago. It's like, well, how long has he been married to Allison? Like what, where is this all coming from? So here's something interesting. Here's something that I love that, that, that uh, Chris Columbus did not think about because in the movie, they cut that little aside and you find out about it later. But when you find out about it later, Mimi says it was two years ago, which on the one hand can make it predate his marriage. But two years ago, she was 17. She's 17! She was 17! And he was effectively not. And he is Tay Diggs, who might be playing like 26, but he looks 35. So... Oh, oh God! Oh, oh, God. oh Robin, <laughs> Robin, I cannot more highly recommend that you get yourself a nice bottle of wine and you sit down <laughs> and you watch this movie. No, you need to watch the oh, 2008 God. version, which will fill you with like, because the thing is, the thing about seeing this on stage and the reason that watching it was so joyful and I was so pleasantly surprised by the ways that it it, it, it didn't 
hurt. It, 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 it didn't make me cringe is that it is such effective visual storytelling. And for all that the characters are underwritten, the music carries you through so seamlessly that you don't have time to stop and notice. Uh, It's not until Mm -hmm. later thinking back on it that you go, wait a minute, Roger sucks. What? Uh, That like, you have to stop and it doesn't let you stop. Um, And it is a musical that thrives on stage. Uh, The movie did not thrive. And luckily, we were in the age of reboots. So within the next 15 years, there will be another one. Tom Holland well, they will just play the... Mark. It will be... <laughs> well, they just did the, the, the Rent Live. Yeah, I didn't watch like, it. Which I, I refused. Um, this was the one that like famously Roger broke his leg on the day of the show. So they ended up airing, right. they aired the dress rehearsal. And it was apparently terrible because no one was, because everyone was marking it because it was a dress rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, and it's like the actor's nightmare. It's like awful, the worst. But, the worst. Oh, there, there, there had to be a different way to handle that. Understudies. You handle that with understudies. Yeah, exactly. But there's a whole different conversation to be had about these live musicals that they do for TV, yes. which I have so many issues yes. with. Yes, another podcast. Um, but another podcast. Um, but the thing about Benny also is when I was reading the Newsweek article and they were talking to Jeffrey Seller, and he says like specifically like. If I wanted to go make money, I'd go to Wall Street and like make new forms of money or whatever. But I love theater. And basically, Jeffrey Seller is, is Benny. Benny. And it, it's such this delicious irony for me that, John, that Jonathan Larson wrote a musical in which the idea of making money doing for making your art is tantamount to the worst moral crime. And yet... Rent then became this runaway success, printing money, basically. Yes. Like Ran for 12 years. The Hamilton years. of its day. Mm-hmm. And, and also one thing that I thought was really interesting that in the Newsweek article, guess what the top ticket price for rent was? This is going to hurt. What was it? $67.50. Ah, no! Huh! Ah! Oh, God! <laughs> God, that's a <laughs> discount price today. That's the t- that's like a price you pay on like, TKTS. Like, last, like that was the ceiling. That was like orchestra. Discount. No, th- yeah, th- th- those are like the best seats nowadays. That's like discount obstructed view. Yes, like um, like oh god, <laughs> oh yeah. I read that number and I was like, I kind of like nearly fell off my chair. Like I moved to New York to do theater and be around theater and see theater. And I have seen so little mainstream theater because it is inaccessible for the people that Rent was written about. Um, okay. And this is, and this is another thing. So yes. this is getting into like when it started to curdle for me. Tell me. And it was around 2004, 2005. And so like 2004 or like when they announced that they're making the movie and they're doing it with the original cast. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but they're all in their thirties now. <laughs> and, and I was just like, well, okay. But then I keep reading more about it and I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And then in 2004, team America world police comes out. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I know exactly what you're going to talk about. Go on. And I'll send you the link yes. too. Like, so in team America world police, they they cut to a scene in New York and it's Times Square and you see billboards for like Chicago and all these shows that are running. 
And then you, it cuts to a stage and it's very much rent. It's scaffolding and very industrial. And basically, and then there's this team, there's these, all the little marionette puppets and they're like, AIDS, <laughs> everyone has AIDS. <laughs> and basically just demolishes yeah. the, the, the idea of rent. And then, but when I was watching the video last night, what I noticed is they've got the audience, all the puppet audience, and they're all pretty much white and older. Yes. And all these older white people crying about AIDS or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like the most perfect, like, surgical takedown of what Rent became. And uh, And how Broadway functions. Yeah, and how Broadway functions, and that you take you are presenting something that is transgressive, and to me it felt tra- like transgressive, but you make it palatable mm-hmm. and only accessible mm-hmm. to older white people. Yeah, yeah, and so in a lot of ways you don't, you kind of don't really have any consequences attached to worrying about how you represent people on stage because. The only people who need to see who who have access to seeing themselves on stage are the old white people, and that's why we have another revival of Music Man coming to the stage. Um, yep. Yep. Side note: uh, After seeing the uh, the Oklahoma that fucks last season, I desperately I wanted to oh, see that so bad. God, it was good, and it did everything. <laughs> Like it leaned into all of the problems of Oklahoma and made them the point. And that's what was so great. And yeah. I want that treatment for like, I would, I, if I were the queen of Broadway, no musical written before 1980 would be allowed to be revived with a white person in the cast until it had been revived with a cast of color, uh, mm. with a cringe conscious staging, like mm-hmm. go on go like go on and do go on and do the king and i and look me in the eye when all of the children bow western style at the end and tell me like mm-hmm. show me you know what that means so yeah to jump off of the everyone has aids point though um <laughs> no something that occurred to me in this last watch through uh i want to talk about the way that aids dramatically functions in this musical first of all yeah I think it's unintentionally hilarious that when Collins and Angel meet for the first time, like in their first conversation, Angel says, by the way, I'm going to a meeting. I have AIDS. And Colin says, oh, great. Me too. Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, and they, and Roger and Mimi basically have a meet cute over easy tea break. Yeah, like they're in the middle of a fight. <laughs> they're in the middle of a fight and then the fight stops because their beepers go off at the same time and they're both like, you take pills? Oh, no way, I take pills. This is great. And like, uh, no, but even right after Collins and Angel is the bit where Mark does his close on Roger, his girlfriend, he's Kermit the Frog now, his girlfriend <laughs> left a note saying we've got AIDS. Like the most important any character who is related to AIDS, it is the most important thing that you know about them is that yeah. they have AIDS and it's it's causing feelings for them. But also it's Chekhov's AIDS because if a character has AIDS in act one, they have to pair up with a character who also has AIDS by act two. There's no negotiation of a pause right. relationship because 
again, Jonathan Larson doesn't fundamentally understand how HIV works. Um, yeah. And also because it's based on an opera in which the heroine dies, somebody's got to die. Someone's got to die. Uh, but like, why does Collins need to have AIDS? Uh, like, like, isn't it stronger and more beautiful and more transgressive that it just doesn't fucking matter to him that Angel is paused? Yeah. Uh, the- yeah. I... <laughs> It made me giggle so inappropriately that like, that's like, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, like these, I guess something that was so clear to me is like when I was a kid encountering this musical, I aspired to be this sort of like grungy, kick-ass, devil-may-care, bohemian, out there artist who like just put all of my shit out there and like partied all night and like threw protests in lots and lived in a loft. And now I'm 31 and I watched this and I thought, I'm sure there are people out there who are like this, but all of these people exhaust me so much. They are, they are exhausting. Like, oh my God. Angel, like, like if my friend came over and said, by the way, I want you to meet my new girlfriend. And that girlfriend came through the door and did a drum solo for five minutes. (laughs) I would telling telling you about how she killed a dog. (laughs) She killed a dog for money. (laughs) Like I'm done. I'm done. I don't. Angel murdered a dog. Angel murdered a dog. And they're fine with it. They're all fine with it. Even there's a line at the end where where, making money making money on your art is bad. Killing a dog for money. Cool. When Benny, You're awesome. when, we love you. when Benny pays for the funeral, Collins says, I think it's only fair to tell you, you just paid for the funeral of the man. I think he says man who killed your dog. And Benny says, I know I always hated that dog. Like justice for Evita, man. She just didn't. <laughs> she was in Akita, which is a famously difficult dog to keep in an apartment. She was barking for freedom. She was making a <laughs> leap to safety. She was unhappy. And that's, and and like, and we, and we really know nothing about Allison except she's rich and Benny married her and she had Nikita named Evita. So maybe Allison was just maybe not the best dog parent for Evita, but that's not enough reason. Allison, like, Allison is like Maris from Frasier, but less charismatic and interesting. She is like Maris. Yeah. But also like not evil. Like Allison is just like the worst thing about Allison is that she's rich and married Benny. And that's why everyone hates her for some reason. Like, and and we never hear about like him like trying to introduce Allison and her being awful. Like, she she is she's not even she's not even Maris. I mean, Maris at least I could tell you about Maris. Yeah. Like Mar like I could tell you I could give you a detailed character breakdown of Maris Crane. We know a lot about I, Maris. Yes. Yeah. Like I. I can't tell you anything about Allison except she's rich. She's from Westport. She had a dog who was killed in a horrible way. <laughs> and when her when and when she found out her husband was cheating on her with a sex worker, she didn't divorce him. She made she pulled him out. She's a very interesting woman, and I would like to see the wicked for Allison from Rent. Right? Yes. <laughs> That's what I That's what see. I want. Written by queer people of color about <laughs> about a cis white Gilmore girl in Connecticut. That's what I want. Yeah. Because and I'll bet that like she met Betty somehow and maybe he was like working as a cater waiter at some event and they're flirting and she was like, "Ooh, 
handsome black guy from East Village. Iconoclastic artist type. Yeah, but he's ambitious. Oh, yeah, maybe, like, she thought he'd, he'd piss off her parents, but then he goes out of his way to impress her dad because he's one of her the investors. And I don't know. Maybe she really loves him. But here's the thing. I don't know about Benny, but Mark and Roger have to come from some sort of money, right? Because they don't have oh, jobs. Sure. And even if they're not paying rent, they've got to be paying for something in New York, right? Like, yeah. somehow. Yeah. Also, also, lyric that drove me crazy this time was, it's true you sold your guitar and bought a car. How good was that guitar? How bad was that car? Was the economy that different? <laughs> Especially they could get him to Santa Fe, New exactly, Mexico. Exactly. Exactly. And also the movie is hilarious about that because in because what you own is staged with like him in Santa Fe and Mark in New York and Mark is struggling through Buzzline and Roger is finding himself in Santa Fe and it shows him driving <laughs> And then selling the car and buying a new guitar in Santa Fe. So his entire economy is car guitar exchange. Like, that's all he knows. That's all Roger can do. But it's a Mustang. It's a 65 Mustang. There's no guitar. There can't be a guitar that he would have that would exchange for a 65 Mustang in good enough condition to get him from New York to Santa Fe. Oh, my God. Speaking of... Speaking of things that are different, watching this as an adult versus watching this as a teenager is as a teenager, Santa Fe was the song that like I mostly skipped because it just it was like fine, but it didn't carry the story anywhere. And I didn't like it that much. It's like they're stopping and daydreaming. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have lived in New York for six years, go almost seven. No, seven in six days. It will be my seven year anniversary of signing my lease in New York. Um, no, holy shit. It's today. It's October 1st. Today is my, is it really? Yeah. Happy New York anniversary. Happy New York anniversary. Happy New York anniversary. I've spent several of those years staring at Zillow shopping for houses in faraway states where I could like get a full house for the amount of rent I pay for this bedroom. And the idea of like having a job, there's a line in Santa Fe that simply Our labors will breed financial gain. And it's so prosaic and so poetic at once because that is all New Yorkers dream about. Even New Yorkers who love New York and can't imagine leaving, part of loving New York is imagining leaving. Like that's just part of your time. And it's Mm -hmm. so like I just fell in love with that song both times again and again. The idea of like it just freedom and escape and imagine if everything that I was hustling so hard for right now didn't matter. It would be great. Yeah. And like, that kind of brings me to, 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 to something. The thing that I think is the most, for me, from where I am in my life, the most toxic and cringe about this musical, and we've touched on this before, but it, it, it bears repeating, is that it does so uplift in, in, in Mark's conflict and in the way everyone relates to Benny. It, it uplifts this ideal of um, the most important thing in your life to the exclusion of all others, including monetary and financial comfort. The most important thing in your life is pursuing whatever your artistic ideal is, even if, like Mark, you don't know what that ideal is, but you know that pursuing that unknowingness is more important than a steady job. 
And like, yeah. it's hard for me to articulate. It's like, it's more important to be able to say I'm an artist rather than I, I work in an office. And, both can be true or, is the thing. Yeah, exactly. That like both can be true. And I think, and, and this musical refuses to, you are either an artist or you are a sellout. A sellout. And, the 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 phrase the the word sellout is so problematic uh and 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 judgment based and it's it's a judgment based on in this in this musical sellout means you are succeeding at something other than your artistic ideal and that's not a crime or a failure that's just life and you need to do that to make good art like i moved to new york uh, at a high of my theatrical career, I was killing it in LA theater. I, the last show I did in LA was, uh, you know, I moved to New York actually, uh, on October 1st. And then I got a third callback at the Mark Taper forum. So I had to fly back and do that callback, <laughs> which I booked. So then I kept my apartment in New York while I did a show at the Mark Taper Forum opposite Brian Dennehy, which is basically winning New York, uh, winning LA theater. And then I moved to New York. I mean, that's winning. That, that That's winning. Thank you. Like- then I moved to New York and was never heard of again. Uh, my first year in New York, I did 150 open call auditions. My second year in New York, I did 175. And I booked nothing from any of them. My third year, I stopped counting. My fourth year, I stopped going. And I got deeply depressed because for much of my life, uh, artistic fulfillment, the, the, the feeling of the, the feeling of satisfaction from creating art and artistic success, the feeling of validation from getting cast in things had been my substitutes for joy. And I didn't have them and I didn't have control over them. So I was suffering for my art and I went a long time not getting help for it because I told myself, well, if I'm not okay with suffering for my art, that I'm not a true artist. And if I'm not a true artist, then uh, like, like somehow- like and who am I? Then who am who I? And I'd somehow like- stigmatized in my brain that like getting help for my depression would alleviate my suffering. But if I leaved my suffering, I wasn't an artist anymore. And also I was worried yeah. that like my art came from my suffering. What if like all of this pain inside me is what makes me a good at acting? And and that is and that is such a, an insidious yeah. trope that only recently, like I feel like only in the last few Absolutely. years really that, pe- that people have really started to unpack and say, no, 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 this is unhealthy. And for a long time, I resisted what I'm trying to pursue now, which is the idea that maybe I should pursue a job for material comfort so that I'm not panicked all the time. And then I will have time to make art without panicking because that would make me a sellout. Like if I decided to go and get a job job as opposed to, you know, an actor job, uh, waiting tables or nannying or temping or any of the other things that I do, um, if I decided to to get a real job, then I would be giving up, which is, I'm here to tell you, is fundamentally not true. And certainly rent is mm-hmm. not remotely single-handedly responsible for this worldview, but it is a crystallization and an idealization of it. Mark's trajectory that we're supposed to celebrate is he has offered a job 
that will pay him good money to use his artistic skills. And we are supposed to celebrate that he says no, so he can focus on his art. Rogers. Yeah, there's this line in in What You Own, and he and he's decided he wants to finish his film. So rather than saying, well, thanks to the money I've been earning from my salary from this job in my off hours, I'll finish my film. He calls and quits. Like, that's not going to help you finish your job, my dude. That's not. Because we we actually can't make art when we're suffering. It's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we need to satisfy certain needs, uh, basic needs, amongst them, food, shelter, love, and relationship, before we're able to pay attention to spiritual and psychological things like art. Um, and I I think it's entirely possible that if Rent didn't have such a deep hold on my soul as a teenager, it wouldn't have taken me as long to come around to the idea that. It is possible to prioritize your mental health and still make good art. And it's possible to prioritize your financial health and still make good art. And mm-hmm. that the artistic success the, the artistic successes we should be glorifying are like certainly we we can glorify Edgar Allan Poe, who died penniless and drunk in a gutter and then found success after he died. But we can also glorify the people who had fucking jobs and then wrote a book. Like like uh, freaking George S. Kaufman, one of the most prolific playwrights of the Broadway age, was writing for the new was a was a reviewer for the New York Times, and I think I read somewhere he didn't give up that job until after his like sixth play had opened on Broadway, just in case. Oh wow! Yeah, and listen, I. I just, I, 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 you, you mentioned when you first noticed this play started turtle for for you. For me, it was like a couple of years ago when someone, one of my friends, was posting on Facebook about how rent would be different from for millennials. And for millennials, all of the characters would have three jobs. And the moment Benny came in and said, "Hey, I'll give you free rent and studio space," they would say, "Yes, play over and done. Fifteen minutes." Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think. I think the other thing is going back to millennials is we were influenced by this Gen X world mm-hmm. um, with the idea of you're, you're living for your art. You're always doing everything for your art. And we're come and we were also raised into a generation of you are always working. Like if you're not doing something, if you're not doing something productive, if you're, if you're not studying, if you're not, playing on a baseball team or going to like ballet practice or something. Extracurriculars. Yeah. If you're not doing your extracurriculars, if you're not trying to be the best constantly, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other, that's the other, that's something that rent kind of pushes through. It's like, if you make it easy for yourself, if you take some pressure off of yourself, Mm -hmm. If they'd allowed Benny to say, hey, you want me to make your life a little easier? And they're like, no, because then they're not. They're not good enough for this idea that they have of themselves of I'm suffering for my art. And if I'm not suffering, then I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. And I think that that. Especially for a certain for like theater kids, but. I think it manifests in a specific way for for people who are really into rent, but I think it's um, 
an attitude that started really coming to the fore in the mid nineties for our generation. And I'm a little older than you. Um, so it was, it was slightly different for me, but there, that pressure to be constantly working toward something yeah, was so real. And I think that in rent, the pressure is you must always be a suffering artist. <laughs> yeah. And there's this moment in the beginning of act two where Mark has just gotten the, the voicemail from Alexi offering him a job and they listen to it. And Maureen is like, I think we need an agent. Like, and Maureen is like, you would think that her girlfriend, the lawyer would be like, yeah, that's actually smart. And her, and, but Joanna's like, well, that's selling out. And it, it, it's, it, it struck me listening to it just this past week that like Maureen, who's just had a big protest, mm-hmm. like protesting the man sees an opportunity and like has the immediate has immediately has the smartest reaction to it. Like we need an agent. We need someone who can start negotiating things for us. The reason that that's and given immediately shot down. Well, the reason that that's given to Maureen is that Maureen is coded as the duplicitous, untrustworthy character. That's true. That's true. Yeah. She, she's, she's the, fa- she's the closet. She was the lesbian who was, who's taking advantage of dear sweet Mark. She's either, the- either she's the lesbian who's taking advantage of dear sweet Mark or she's the fake lesbian who's taking advantage of dear sweet Joanne, or yeah. she's taking advantage of them both, uh, as depicted in the excellent first act number Tango Maureen, which uh, is, mm-hmm. is 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 like problematic. It's like always a woman, but with anger. But I still love it. It's yeah, like it's real cool to see two people who fundamentally should not be solving each other's problems like bonding Mm -hmm. over this shared issue that they have it's cute it also sets up like maureen like you haven't met her yet like she has to she has to be a force of nature and like maureen in some ways is the most difficult character because she has to just be like this person who just casts this like sexual spell Mm -hmm. over every person she meets Mm -hmm. And without, and she's not really given a chance to be a person. She's just this, this walking archetype of the. You could argue she's the other antagonist of the musical. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and that's, so Maureen also is based on Musetta, mm-hmm. uh, who as, as in Musetta's waltz and Musetta in the, the opera is Marcello's ex. And they, they encounter her at the end of act two and she gets up on a piano and sings mm-hmm. and she's doing it specifically to, to needle and goad Marcello. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, a, one of the big differences of the musical versus the opera is that Marcello and Musetta from then on are basically together, but there's, it's still a very volatile relationship and they argue and yell all the time, but they're together and taking that relationship away from this character from, from the Maureen Musetta character makes her a lot more difficult. Like how do you then keep her in the picture? Well, it also, it, yes, you're absolutely right. It also leaves a void for Mark 
to have any trajectory, but also it it yeah. falls into a, I think a fairly common stereotype, and this is one I didn't research before recording, of uh, lesbians appearing as comedically catfighty. Um, it's I don't know. I just I just I love that we get Collins and Angel as a functional happy gay, happy gay couple until one of them dies tragically because that's because because that's how the trope goes and then mm-hmm. we have the other couple who have to be fighting all of the time because if we had two functional happy gay couples i guess it would be boring i don't and i mean and this is again like the 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 straight cis male gaze it's like the 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 only happiness that really matters in the end is marks because he is the surrogate for jonathan larson so he finishes his film mm-hmm. And then Mimi and Roger, because they're the the central couple and they have to have a happy ending, too. And at the end, it's it's implied that Maureen and, and Joanne are still together. But for how long, though? But for how long? I mean, are they currently on and they're going to be off again next week? And the other thing about Roger and Mimi, they're not going to make it. They are not going to make it. Like, they're just like nothing about... That what you've seen of their relationship before gives you any like hope that they're going to have a stable, loving, mature relationship no, going forward. I, I do not know what Mimi sees in or gets out of this relationship other than sex, which again, as we've previously established, is abundant and low value. Yeah. And like maybe he's really good in bed, but... She doesn't know that when she's like going out of her way to pursue him. Yeah. And she's only clean. She's only been clean around him when they're happy. Like when they're in the that first week of like our new relationship and everything's so great. And the second things turn bad, she backslides. She uses again. And then he shames her for it. Like he he is constantly he is constantly finding things to shame her about. And yes, his trauma and his pain are very real, but that is not how you cope with those things. You don't cope with those. Yeah. If you decide that you are afraid of emotional intimacy or you're not ready for emotional intimacy or you don't want to subject anybody to the pain of watching you yourself die, that's fine. But then don't put someone else through the dance of letting them get close and then pushing them away as physically and emotionally violently as possible. Like, I remember just thinking, like, why did none of Roger's friends love him enough to say, hey, you need to see a therapist? During the movie, I actually wrote down, is is Roger their friend or is he their Craigslist roommate that they're all kind of stuck with? Because, <laughs> like, I know he's supposed to be their friend. I, I think part of it is just Adam Pascal, God bless him, his terribly wooden acting. But, like... It's like, why are they being so super nice to this asshat who never gives, like, why does anybody like Roger other than he must have been great? Maybe he was great before before the drugs, or maybe he was great during the drugs, and then he got... And this is where I feel like he and Mark had to be, like, college roommates yeah. or something, but they have, like, like kind of in New Girl, like, with Nick and Schmidt, like, you, like, these... Two people who like this slovenly bartender and and Schmidt, who's like total OCD, like oh this odd couple, crazy. Yeah. and you would this odd couple, and so Mark and Roger, I think, are very much an odd couple. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and they just if they met that day, they wouldn't be friends. Mark would be like, "Damn, you're a buzzkill," and Roger would be like, "Get away from me." 
but because they have this shared history and I think Mark does feel kind of responsible and, and this is, they have a, a fight about this, like after Angel's funeral about how, and Roger kind of rightly calls Mark out. Like this is one of the few times that Roger is right. Uh, but he calls Mark out for, for basically living vicariously through everyone else. Mm. He, he, he says Mark lives for his work. Mark's in love with his work. And, but he's like, no, no, no. Mark hides in his work. Yeah. But Mark's not hurting anybody doing that. And Roger is inflicting emotional trauma on everybody. That's true. That's true. That's true. And, and I think, and, and that's one of the, the weird complications of the characters. I think Mark feels responsible for Roger and Roger doesn't want anyone to be responsible for him. I think that that's very fair. Roger doesn't want, Roger, I think, hates himself so much that he, that anyone who loves him or reaches out to him or tries to take care of him, his immediate response is to lash out and hide and run away. Which is interesting because it brings up my least favorite lyric in this whole musical. I think I always felt weird about it, but now as an adult, it makes me want to punch walls, which is in the middle of the funeral fight. Uh, he says, uh, your words are nice, Mimi, but love's not a three-way street. You'll never share in love until you love yourself. I should know. And like, what the fuck, dude? Like, I mean, you could make the <laughs> argument that what he means is, like, oh, if he continued that sentence, he would say, I should know, because I hate myself, which is why I can't get close to you. But what comes across is, listen, you poor child, when you learn to love yourself, maybe then I will love you or maybe then you'll be able to appreciate me or something. And it's like, Mimi, of all of these people, like she sings out tonight. She loves herself as much as anybody on this fucking stage. Don't give Mimi a lesson in self-love. Like she's got her issues. They are real and abundant. But between the two of you, Mimi and Roger, she is winning the self-love race. And it's only when she's with Roger that she feels bad. Roger wants everybody to feel as bad as he does so that he can feel better. Yeah. It's just, he, I hate, I hate Roger so much. I hate him so much. Yeah. Which is why yeah. the 2008 was so good because I don't know, like Will Chase and Renee, I want the, I want them to work out. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, which makes uh, Goodbye Love such a strong song in that context because like just fucking Renee Elise Goldsberry I'm sorry I'll never stop singing her praises you see in her performance that she is fully realizing that Roger cannot be there for her the way Collins was there for Angel and she knows that she's next mm-hmm. she knows that it's that is coming for her and Roger cannot mm-hmm. be there for her and she doesn't want Benny to be there for her so Goodbye Love is about like it's not just Goodbye, you're leaving, and I'll be dead when you get back. It's, I wish I could believe in you, and I can't, and that fucking sucks. Like, you totally understand her downward spiral after that, even though it is. Yeah, and I mean, and also I think she's just, he's broken her down to the point that she hates herself. And, like, the last lyric of that song is, hello, disease. And she, she, he's kind of, like, put everything about him from the beginning onto her yeah like she wanted to live yeah she wanted to enjoy her yes and then and then at the end of that song she's where he was at the beginning where just like fuck it leave me alone to write a song so I can die yeah and and she and that's he breaks her down Mm -hmm. to that point 
and I'm getting really angry about I this hate now. Roger so much. And so then, and now I'm really mad at Maureen and Joanne that they find her in the park and they're, and, and Mimi's like, take me to, to Roger. They should have been like, no, babe, we should take you to a hospital. We'll, we'll call Roger later if you want, but the first place we take yeah. you and Joanne has the money to get us there quickly. The first place we go is a hospital. Oh my God. Okay. This reminds me of my other really stupid Chris Columbus adaptation move. Okay. Okay. No, you're going to love this. So like in the stage play, like it's done with this sort of artistically bare set and there's actually not a lot of props or set pieces. It's done with these very- yeah, It's very abstract. It's very- Industrial. It's very- and it, and it, usher, and it usher, kind of ushered in a new aesthetic for Broadway, yes. I would say, as well. Yes. Like, scaffolding became all the rage. Totally. So, uh, because of that, like, in the stage play, the only furniture that exists in Roger and Mark's uh, apartment, really, are some chairs and this big industrial table. So when they carry Mimi in, they lie her down on this table. And it's great, because this table was also Angel's hospital bed, and it looks very like she's, it looks like she's on a morgue slab. It's very effective. Yeah. So Chris Columbus clearly wanted this image. But uh, because it's a movie, they're in an actual apartment. There is a couch there. So they carry her in and the line, like one of them says, the couch? And someone says, no, there's stuff on it. Just put her on the table. And then they go over to the table. <laughs> they go over to the table, which also has stuff on it. And they just move the stuff <laughs> off the table and put her on this cold, harsh metal table. And the couch <laughs> is three feet away with like two coats on it. There's two coats on this couch. They're going to let her die on a metal table. I just, Chris, why? Chris, think things through. Chris, Chris. So not only does she have to lie on a table when the couch is in view, she then has to listen to her awful boyfriend's shitty It's really shitty and it took him all year. And it's repetitive and it goes like the, nowhere. The truest line in the entire show is, it isn't much, but it took all year. Sure isn't like, much, buddy. Tisn't much tall. It's like, it's like, babe, if this is what it took you a year to write, maybe you should look into another line of work. Right. And then Angel comes back from the dead to nag her back into his arms. Wake up, girl, and listen to that boy's song. No, wake up, girl, and get back to rehab. Or like, like, girl, go back there, wake up, smack him in the face and ask Joanne and, and Maureen to take you to the hospital. Seriously. Like, seriously, Mimi's issue is that she does like not. If, if somebody was singing that song to me when I was dying, I would be, I would be like, okay, can this cat die faster? Die, oh my God. Die. Like, oh, you're driving like, me stop, towards heart, the white warm light, buddy. <laughs> like it's, it's sad. It's tragic. And I don't mean to like belittle it, but also like. That's what we're here to do though. Oh God. It's just. I never liked it. I never liked that song. I don't think anyone ever liked that song. I don't think even, I don't think Adam Pascal even liked that song. No. Like it's it's his worst performance on the entire. It's really bad. Album. It's a bad song. I and I don't know how it is in the movie, but like it's bad. It's a bad song. <sighs> I also have issues with "Today for You, Tomorrow for Me." Not like the main lyrical storytelling about killing the dog, which is brilliant and well-rhymed. I literally don't know what mm -hmm. today for you, tomorrow for me means or why it's the refrain of the song. I mean, so she's there. She's she's used her ill-gotten gains to buy them cigarettes and stuff. But then what what is she doing for, her, for herself tomorrow? What does she ever do for herself? She does nothing for herself um, this whole time. And, and, that's, and that's the other thing. It's like, it, she's very much a... 
Angel is very much the magical Negro of. of oh, like, she is. Angel is really there to bestow blessings and and wisdom on them, and then to die, so that in the 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 calculus of the show's emotional trajectory, Mimi can live, and she and Roger can have a happy ending for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's it's a sketch and, of a it's a sketch of an incomplete show, um, yeah. And I and also it's a white boy writing rap. Like I don't like. So here's my other. I mean, not specifically about white white boy writing rap, but something that I think it's important to address is 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 the answer we're walking towards that a person a creator should never create material that represents something other than themselves. Yeah, and I think that's a, and that's such a thorny question because I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's the answer. But I think that if you are going to write something, because like the whole the the, the whole trope of write what you know, um, I think can be a very um, uh, limiting and not destructive. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Reductive. It's a it's a very reductive way of looking at what you can create. But I think that if you are going to write something outside of your own experience, or you you can't just wing it. You can't just make it up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's how like talking about Harry Potter. That's how you get a character named Cho Chang. And so it's you can. It's very easy to tell. Um, when you have a white creator writing characters or situations that they do not have a real intimate familiarity with or that they have not taken the time to really question and interrogate and try to become familiar with. And I'm sure that, I mean, Jonathan Larson, he lived in the East Village. I'm sure he knew people like Angel, like Collins, like Maureen, like Joanne, like Mimi, I'm sure he knew these people or people like them, but that doesn't mean he really went deep into mm-hmm. their lived experiences and their life. And one thing that I think is very, it's a, it's a little thing, but when the final voicemail, when all their parents are calling and Mimi's mom calls and it's very like obvious it's like the most basic Spanish, first of all, which I guess is also so the audience can knows what she's asking. Mm-hmm. But she asks, Mimi Chica, donde estas? And any native speaker or anybody who speaks Spanish well, you don't break up the donde estas. It's donde estas. Mm-hmm. But then the refrain becomes, donde estas, Mimi? Donde estas, Mimi? Which scans. But it's like for anyone who is a native Spanish speaker, mm-hmm. it immediately. Well, it also, it falls into something we were talking about on our West Side Story episode, which is there's a line, I think, I think according to the libretto or the, the dramatis personae, uh, Mimi is supposed to be Puerto Rican, but she has a line, feels too damn much like home where the Spanish babies cry. Uh Which is like, it reminds me of West Side Story. She thinks she's in love. She thinks she's in Spain. And it's this thing that the white gaze of uh, Spanish-speaking cultures uh, does where it just 
kind of paints all Hispanic and Latinx characters with roughly the same brush. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and another thing that it does that reminds me of the West Side Story episode is like, I, 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 I'm fully comfortable believing that Jonathan Larson wanted to do right by the characters he was writing about. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not ascribing, I, I don't think he was malicious at all. I think this is just, he had blind spots. Absolutely. That, but I would also add to that. That we all did. That I think that, I, I, I would also add to that, that I think there was no small part of him that was a little opportunistic about like, oh, you know what I should write about instead of consumption? The AIDS crisis. That's a big deal right now, which reminds me of when mm-hmm. West Side Story was written and they were updating it from Capulets and Montagues. They were like, maybe we should talk about the whole that, like the 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 phrase "let's capitalize on the whole Puerto Rican thing" was used. Yeah. And when you do that, yeah. you're you're betraying that. Like, I want to exploit this circumstance for my own gain without necessarily engaging in it. As I, I'm not writing about it for its own sake. I'm writing about it as a MacGuffin to advance this narrative. And yeah, I'm. I think that there. I think that there is a world wherein Jonathan Larson could have written this musical better. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I, I don't firmly believe. Now on this day in 2020, I may change my mind later. I don't firmly believe that uh, a writer is limited, is inherently limited by their own experience, to only write about their own that. experience. But the bar is so much higher when you're writing about someone who doesn't reflect you or your experience. And the bar is so yeah. high to invite as many primary sources of that experience into your process as possible to make sure you serve them properly. And I wish we could have seen that version. Um, yeah. And, and and speaking again of like, I feel pretty from West Side Story, I mean, and this is one of the things... The, the difference between Jonathan Larson and Stephen Sondheim is Stephen Sondheim is still alive and he had time to grow up. And he, he said, he has said multiple times, if he could rewrite, I feel pretty, he would. Yeah. He was 25 because when he wrote he, that. He was, he was 25 and he was trying to make, to impress Lenny Bernstein mm-hmm. with, lyrically. And he, then he got, gets older and was like, I was not writing that from the perspective of a 17 year old girl from Puerto Rico. Who's, whose first language is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I think that Jonathan Larson, had he lived, I I would hope that he would have the same level of Mm self-reflection to go back and be able to criticize his work. And to be able to go back And and revise and revive. Hi, it's Abby. Are you having fun yet? If you are, why not take a minute to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts? Ratings help Apple connect us with more listeners like you, and more listeners will eventually lead us to cool things like new guests, live shows, and everything else we need to make better episodes for you. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. And now, back to the show. Oh my God, Robin, we have to wrap up. And before we do, I need to ask the ultimate question, which is um, given the hours of time we have spent unpacking what's cringy about this musical and the hours of time we have left in us to continue unpacking how cringy this musical is, does this musical still live in your heart and your playlist? It will always live in my heart because it, it, 
like I can still like vivid like the the night I got my disc man and my original Broadway soundtrack I mean that lives in my heart for the rest of my life and I don't listen to it constantly like I when I listened to it this past week I think it was the first time in at least a couple years but every time Mm -hmm. I put it on I can't stop like I have to listen to the whole thing and I I love these dumb people. Like, it's frustrating. I still just want to hug them and like take care of them. I know. And, and I, 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 I want so much for them to be okay. Like I know Roger and Mimi aren't going to make it, but I want them to be okay anyway. And I, yes, I love them. And I love that Jonathan Larson created something that meant something to him and has meant something to so many people. And that meant so much to me and to you. And like the one song glory, he did what Roger wanted to do. He did it. I mean, and it was like, to me, the crime, the, the, the crime of Jonathan Larson is that he didn't live to see himself become his own definition of a sellout <laughs> and see that it's okay and beautiful. Yeah. Like it's actually okay to make the art you want to see in the world and have it become successful and have it support you and be able to stop working as a waiter at the Moondance yeah. Diner where he worked forever in his holy sneakers where I went to have an egg cream when I was 17 because Jonathan Larson worked there. Like I, yes, yes. I'm with you 100%. This musical is cringy and regressive. And also it opened a lot of doors that a lot of amazing things have walked through. Like, I mean, it's like just specifically about Hamilton, like Lin-Manuel Miranda has talked about how like this was a seminal moment in his life, like yes. realizing, oh, there can be a show that has music, like the kind of music I like to listen to and features people that look like me and they're playing and they're yeah. actually playing people that look like me, not like, color colorblind casting or whatever it's like we're specifically casting a latinx actor for this we're specifically casting a black actor for this and and that's just one of the influences i mean we will probably never really know how far of a Mm -hmm. reach that this show has but it's okay yeah i am so for all that I'm going to keep revisiting this show the rest of my life and finding another thing that I'm mad at, I think I'm always going to be grateful to this show for being there when it was and for being there for me and for all of the things that it, all of the beautiful things that it did inspire in me and like for showing me that I can, that, that I can, I can love characters who are messy and broken and wrong and also Characters don't have to be perfect. They they don't have to have trajectories we agree with. I am with you. I love these characters. And Collins at the funeral will always break my heart. And I will always go there for my good cries. Yeah. yeah. It, there are moments, as, as cringy as some of it is, there are moments of such beauty and such... Mm-hmm. Ugh. I love it. I, 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 and because I love it so much, I feel it's my job to criticize it, to be, to be, or to, to see it for what it is. I see it for what it is and I love it anyway. Cause it's messy. 
Yeah. And, uh, and I'm a big old mess. So, Robin, it has been such a fucking joy to have you to talk about this Abby, today. This is like the Thank happiest you. I've been since March 25th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, if if listeners want to find more of you and your opinions and what you're doing out online, where should they look? Uh, basically, I'm mostly on Twitter these days. Uh, Robina the first. It's just Robin, R-O-B-I-N-A, the first. It's my old Gawker handle. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and then Excellent. I'm on Instagram, I'll drop that same link. handle. It's mostly pictures of my dog. But my dog is perfect. I mean, that's what I... That's what I go to Instagram for is pictures of other people's yes. dogs. Uh, that's that's the whole purpose of Instagram as far as I'm concerned. Uh, listeners can find Cringe Benefits on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cringe Benefits. And they can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Abby Wild. That is our show. I am hoarse with the strength of our opinions. <laughs> so it was really freaking good. Uh, and we'll be back next week with another childhood favorite that's become a grown-up regret. Bye!